maybe people will show up. And if they don't, it's recorded. Oh, wait, I can change it. Let's see. Artica, a free and open source Bitcoin storage protocol. There we go. That's better. All right. Well, all three of you, thanks for being here. I am recording this talk, and I'm going to put it on my website for the... This is, I think, the fourth dev vlog that I've done. I did a first one was a Spaces, and then I did two that were, like, walkthroughs of some of the design screens. And this one's going to be another, like, more holistic conversation about Arctica and some of the design decisions and the problems that it's trying to solve. Um... As far as like where the project's at right now, I think about, I would say 95 to 99% of the design work is done in terms of like Figma, laying out all the screens, um, designing all of the UI, those types of things. And now I've started work on the front end. I'm about at the point now where I've got um, like the front end for a fully functional Bitcoin wallet for single sig and I'm about at the point yesterday we started messing around with getting a rust wrapper uh, to run the so we're using view.js which is just a front-end framework uh, in JavaScript to build the UI and all the front end uh, and that's going to be run through software called Tori which basically lets you build uh, a front end as if you're building it for a website but run it within its own GUI so You'll, when you start up Arctica, it'll be uh, all code that's like web-based, but it'll be running in its own GUI on your computer screen, which is pretty sweet. That's going to look pretty slick. Um, so we're, we've started on the Rust wrapper that will be running um, the view application in Tori. And then all the back end's going to be uh, in Rust as well, because we're going to be using the BDK to do some of the more complex um scripting that we need to accomplish um, to make all the things that we want Arctica to do possible. So right now, I think most of the development work is going to be focused on front end, at least until I get to the point where um, I've got like a, a, a usable wallet from that perspective. Um, if anybody wants to see the front end code repository, it's just called uh, Arctica front end, and it's in my GitHub. Let me see if I can post a link to the... Um, there's no easy way for me to do this on my phone. But I will, I'll tweet a link out to the front end um, so that anybody that wants to see it can check it out. And from there, um, I'm just going to jump into talking more about like what Arctica is at a high level, what problems that it's attempting to solve. So um, Arctica is going to be like the uh, title of this space says a free and open source Bitcoin storage protocol. Uh, the steps that we're trying to take in terms of design is minimizing outside dependencies because we want um, this to be, you know, Bitcoin, like, like Bitcoin that uses Bitcoin Core and some additional other things like as necessary. So... Um, Minimizing dependencies comes with a lot of challenges, but it comes with a lot of advantages, too. The main advantages being that if you use a protocol like Arctica to store your Bitcoin and Arctica stops existing tomorrow, um, a competent developer could come along and, and help you um, 
you know, use access your Bitcoin just using existing open source software tools like Bitcoin Core. Like we don't ever want to lock you out of your Bitcoin in such a way that you have to rely on us and our software in order to recover it. Um, so, so what Arctica basically is is it's a set. Uh, it's it's a it's a very like user friendly experience that's going to be designed to walk a user from zero to. Uh, extremely or optimally secure and private self-custody solution. And what it's actually going to look like is um, seven distributed keys, uh, and the keys are stored on SD cards. And the advantage of storing the keys on the SD, there, there's backups too, so, so don't, don't like stress about um, like BitRot or anything like that. There are backups, but... Um, the SD card, the reason that we're putting each key on the SD cards is because we can set, we can flash each SD card with its own um, instance of Ubuntu. So basically what you'll be able to do is you'll have your node, which will just be like a laptop that you're running Arctica on, which will be running Bitcoin Core and Join Market. And uh, you'll, you'll generate your transaction on your SD card one, which will kind of be like your hub for your node. And then you can take all of your other SD cards, your two through seven SD cards, and boot off of any computer like in a secure environment because it's got its own self-contained OS on the SD card. All you'll have to do is stick it in and restart the computer, and it will restart into its own operating system. And then you can sign your partially signed Bitcoin transaction that you've exported from your node. Uh, so this enables us to like do all kinds of really cool... Um, features when it comes to like people being able to spend their Bitcoin. So you're going to have these seven keys, which are these seven SD cards, and that's going to give you access to your um, low security wallet, your medium security wallet, and your high security wallet. And each of those wallets are going to have different spending thresholds. Um, one of the recent design decision changes that I made just the other day, I was tweeting about it, but I don't think very many people really saw it, was that this is going to have a hot wallet attached to it because we're going to have to do that if um, we're going to be strongly encouraging the user to move all of their funds that come in and out of Arctica through join market for privacy purposes, obviously. So all of your funds are going to come through join market, which is going to have to be a hot wallet. So that's going to be a single SIG wallet, and that's going to just live on your node. So Arctica is going to have that hot wallet, right, which is really easy to spend from, obviously, but also pretty low security. Um, it'll be decent enough security just because you'll have set up a dedicated machine for this. So, you know, you won't have to worry about viruses or malware or anything like that because you'll be installing Linux fresh uh, on this machine from scratch. And then from there, we will have two different machines that generate the rest of the seven keys um, just to make sure you get a little bit of diversity there in the key generation. It's not all being done on one machine that could have like a, like a corrupted BIOS or something like that. And then uh, you'll have your medium security wallet, which is basically going to be a two of seven. And I'm co we're calling that the immediate wallet for now. That, that name is probably going to change because uh, internally it just helps us keep track of what that wallet does. Uh, it's a two of seven with no time lock. That's why it's called the immediate wallet because you can access the funds immediately, assuming that you have um, 
access to two keys to meet that spending threshold. And then the the kind of the flagship feature of it, of the wallet is going to be the, the high security area, which is what we're calling internally the delayed wallet. Um, again, that name will probably change. It'll probably be changed to like retirement savings or something like, I'm thinking like checking savings retirement or something like that. But we, we may stick with the hot immediate delayed convention i don't know i don't think that that's as clear to people what exactly those wallets are doing but the delayed wallet is a five of seven with a time lock and that time lock uh lasts for four years so the the other problem that arctica is trying to solve for is not just providing security like yeah that's a really secure space you think about a 507 that's pretty intense um but by design it's it's those coins are really difficult to move, but they're not difficult to move forever. Um, the What happens, because this protocol is not just trying to solve for security, it's also trying to solve the problem of inheritance. So every single instance of Arctica kind of has a soft shelf life. And what I mean by that is the spending threshold for the delayed wallet starts to decay uh, after a certain amount of time passes by. Right now, the placeholder time, or, or I don't want to say placeholder, the time that we're targeting for the shelf life, the soft shelf life of an Arctica setup is four years. And after four years, um, the privacy requirements start to decay because the privacy keys are published to the Bitcoin blockchain, which are basically just... Uh, the keys that encrypt all of your SD cards. So either you either need access to five SD cards to decrypt any single one SD card, or you need to uh, make a connection with the blind password server, which is going to be a fork of the Blockstream PIN servers that are used to access your PIN in kind of a blind relationship with uh, anonymous server operators. They're going to be doing the same thing where they're sending you the decryption key for your pass uh, for your SD card. So that, so that this, this gives you the user privacy so that if anybody discovers any one of your SD cards, they're not able to say, oh, here's this guy's descriptor and now I have all of his... Uh, transaction history and I know exactly how much money he has on this SD card. They wouldn't be able to access your funds, but that's one of the biggest weaknesses of um, multi-sig security setups like in its current form is that anybody comes across any of your keys, assuming that you're storing your descriptor with all of your keys, which you should be, uh, they can immediately dox like your transaction history. So that's a bit of a problem. Um, that we're going to be that we're attempting to solve here. So uh, the privacy side of things decays after four years, and then as well the spending threshold of that five of seven starts to decay over the next year after you hit that four year mark. And uh, we're looking at ways to kind of extend that timeline for people who hit that four year mark. They're still alive, and they're like, okay, I don't want uh, my wallet to start decaying yet. I'd like to push this out another four years. Um, that's probably something that we're going to be able to do um i don't want to like guarantee that yet but at worst case scenario you know this product has like a four to five year shelf life and then you just have to sweep the funds and set everything back up again which isn't the end of the world um it's not necessarily ideal but in the process of trying to solve for inheritance we have to have that uh that decaying privacy and spending threshold so that like an uninformed heir with access to only one of your envelopes could theoretically eventually spend you know five years after setup um because it's decayed down to like a two of seven or i think it's going to eventually decay down to a one of seven i need to pull up my design document here and verify that it's, there's a very comprehensive like 
20 something page design document that we've got and the details change from time to time. So I just want to make sure I'm uh, up to date with the latest. Um, but yeah, so I don't know if you guys are like me and you have kids and you're, you're worried, you know, you, you have to constantly think about the future. And you, if you're a Bitcoiner and you have a lot of your wealth in Bitcoin or all of your wealth in Bitcoin, you probably have spent time thinking, okay, if something were to happen to me tomorrow, um, would my family be able to recover my money? Um, and if the answer is yes, then you need to also be asking yourself, is it secure enough? Because if they can recover it, if you're gone, um, then every single one of those people could probably spend from it today, right? So trying to strike a balance between um, giving access to your money to like uh, a trusted heir and you know protecting it um, securely today, it's really difficult to strike a balance between those two things. So the the elegant solution that we've derived is to have this. Um, to kind of spread out your risk across, you know, you've got your spending wallet, you've got your immediate wallet, which is like medium security because it's a two of seven, and then your very high security wallet, which is time locked. It's a five of seven, and then on a, on a long enough timeline, access to that starts to decay if you haven't taken steps to sweep the funds out of that setup. Uh, and so that's kind of like the high-level overview of it is that the problem it's trying to solve is uh, first and foremost security for self-custody but in a way where it's really, really easy for a new uh, and non-technical user to set up. The, the steep technical requirement on the front end of this is that you are going to have to flash a laptop with Linux. Uh, and that scares a lot of people off. I've actually had, I was talking to people, I'm using the Bitcoin UI kit to design all of the front end for this, using all of their assets. And I was in their Bitcoin design Slack, and they were kind of, beat me up a little bit because they were like, man, you're trying to design uh, an application that is for targeted at users who are not technically savvy and you expect them to be able to flash a laptop with Linux. And my answer to that is yes, I do, because it's really not that hard. Uh, anybody can learn how to do it if they're willing to just take a little bit of the time to learn how do you create a bootloader on a USB stick. And the baseline uh, security, for one, the baseline security assumptions that that gives us is that your computer doesn't have any malware on it, right? Because you've just recently flashed it with uh, Linux. The second assumption that that lets us make is that our software is going to be running in a Linux environment, which simplifies uh, the technical complexities so much because now we don't have to plan and say, okay, what if this person's running Mac? What if this person's running Windows? Uh, it, it simplifies the... The troubleshooting so much if we're just making sure everybody's on the exact same version of the exact same distribution of the exact same operating system, um, and and that's just because this is a free and open source project, right? So uh, there there aren't a ton of resources to go around for making sure that people can run the software on Windows or on Mac or whatever. Uh, so those baseline assumptions they can't really be escaped from, and I think that anybody that isn't willing to take the time to learn how to flash. Uh, a laptop, like a used cheap laptop with Linux uh, for this setup probably isn't the target market because they don't have enough wealth in Bitcoin to be interested in taking their uh, self-custody security and privacy seriously. And there has to be a little bit of buy-in on these types of things, I think, up front. Um, if you really want to deliver optimal security and privacy for self-custody, because there's a lot of solutions out there, right? I mean, I don't know about you guys, but whenever somebody asks me, hey, uh, I want to get my Bitcoin off of the exchange, what should I do? 
um, or I'm, I want to take self-custody to Bitcoin, how do I do that? What's the best step? Uh, there's a lot of answers that I can give them. I can say, oh, just go on Amazon and buy a Trezor and plug that into your regular computer and you can send your Bitcoin to that. Um, and on the surface to a lot of people, that seems like a really great solution. But there's a lot of potential problems with that, especially for a newbie um, that you're exposing them to and, and not really warning them about because... Uh, Let's be honest, a lot of times with those types of conversations, we're headed down the path of least resistance because we think, oh, shoot, this person doesn't want to learn how to use Bitcoin Core. This person isn't going to be interested in running their own node. This person um, doesn't really know anything about security and privacy. I'm just going to send them to the closest, the easiest thing that I think is mostly good enough, right? But if we're starting to talk about um, what I think is going to happen over the coming years where people with a lot of wealth are coming into Bitcoin and are going to be looking to achieve a certain level of um, security assurance in their self-custody, then we can't just be pointing them to the easiest solutions just because they're passive lease resistance. Uh, and, and I don't think that enough work has been done on this front. Uh, there's been a lot of work done on this front when it comes to providing proprietary solutions, but there's not a lot of free and open source solutions that take a user who is not very technically savvy and walk them into uh, an optimal self-custody solution. So that's really the target audience. But like I said, we, we do need buy-in from that user up front that they're willing to put in a bit of work because even just the setup process, even if we make it as simple as um, click this box, click or open the, open the software, click a button, click a button, click a button, click a button, stick in a US or an SD card, click a button, stick in a CD, click a button, stick in an SD card, click a button. Like that's easy. Anybody can do that. You could teach a monkey or a child to do that. Um, but it also is very time consuming. So a person has to be willing to follow through on setup from, from A to Z. Uh, and, and the big the kind of the, the start, the buy-in for that process is, are they willing to take the time to follow a short guide and create a booter that, that flashes their laptop with Linux? I don't think that that's too much of an ask. Um, I don't know, like worst case scenario, I guess you could sell USB sticks with like Linux pre-imaged on it or something like that and mail them to people, have them pay you like $15 for it or whatever. But like, that really defeats the point because what we're trying to get away from here is um, Bitcoin hardware and software that comes prepackaged and is delivered straight to the user. Um, there's a lot of risk, a lot of risk that most Bitcoiners, I think, overlook when it comes to risks of using proprietary hardware and proprietary software. Uh, because in a lot of cases, you can't verify uh, even even if the project is is it mostly open source or has a lot of aspects to it are open source, you can't fully verify software that comes preloaded on a device, especially uh, if, if that device isn't open and you don't have easy access to um, like re-image that device yourself or or you don't have the technical capability to like verify the integrity of things within it. Um, and I don't, I don't necessarily want to like crap on hardware wallets either because I think that they do have a place. Uh, I use one as a spending wallet because the user experience just makes it so easy to spend from uh, that, that it's kind of hard not to. But uh, I would like to eventually be able to integrate 
um, hardware wallets as signing devices within Arctica. I think that that would make for a pretty smooth user experience if you could set that up for maybe for like your two of seven uh, or maybe even um, you do that with like with your hot wallet or something like that where you could turn it into like a warm slash cool wallet uh, for your single SIG. Uh, I would love to be able to support like seat signer and maybe cold card and, and maybe Trezor just so that the people who have because uh, I, I know a lot of Bitcoiners already have those wallets, and it's helpful when you can make use of them. But the idea with Arctica is really that you don't need those things, that uh, all of the software can be installed on a regular computer, and all of the extra extraneous uh, accessories that you need are uh, standard like SD cards, standard you know, writable CDs or DVDs, uh, pieces of paper, envelopes, right? Like the types of things that are really easy to source um, that, that don't have, you know, a very high uh, threat vector for being, um, what's the term, like tampered with, right? Because like chances are you're not going to get a batch of SD cards that have malware loaded on them if you're buying them. Uh, from like SanDisk or whatever, and you might right you just reformat it when you get it, and then you're you're pretty much good to go. Like you you don't need to really worry about that. You're a much bigger, um, you're a much more risky target if you're targeting, uh, or you're much more risky target if you're buying proprietary hardware from like a vendor that sells uh, hardware and software to Bitcoiners. Right, it, it makes a lot more sense if you're an attacker to focus your efforts on attacking the supply chains, uh, attacking the actual production process of those devices or of that software, uh, of socially engineering and attacking the users, right? Because that software and hardware has to get to those users, so you have to collect some sort of information on them to get it to them. Um, so ideally, what we're doing is distributing the software in, in an open source environment and the user is taking the onus upon themselves to install it on their machine, right, that they've installed Linux on, and then that eliminates so many of these edge case security concerns that can come up with um, using these hardware wallets. And when I rewind, like, my Bitcoin journey, the very first hardware wallet that I ever had was a Trezor that I bought off of Amazon. And, and I bought a Trezor and a Ledger off of Amazon, and I used both of them, and... That was back when I was like involved in shit coins and all that type of stuff. So that was, I think, probably why I gravitated towards those is because they supported so many different shit coins. But I didn't even realize at the time that I was opening myself up to huge security vulnerabilities by buying those hardware wallets right, like right off of Amazon. I, I probably got shilled like an affiliate link or something like that in a YouTube video and didn't even know it and just clicked it none the wiser thinking, well, this person seems like they know what they're talking about. I'm going to go and buy this device that they recommend. Uh, and it's supposedly totally secure and nobody ever has any problems. Uh, there's a big problem with buying hardware off of Amazon that's targeted at Bitcoiners that's coming from like a third party, uh, not from the distributor itself. Like I, I'll let you guys fill those gaps in in your head of all the things that could happen that are bad. But uh, and, and it was really just because like I didn't know any better, right? And that was what was recommended to me and it was easy. Um, and it worked. Like fortunately, I wasn't one of those users who just so happened to have the right malware on their computer 
that when they plugged in the Trezor, it, it prompted them to enter their seed phrase, and they, you know, without knowing, like, even what that is or what that meant, um, lost a lot of funds. Like, there was a guy that that happened to, like, a couple of years ago on, on Bitcoin Twitter. It was, like, before everything started going crazy. It was, like, either early 2020 or 2019. Um, he basically was like, yeah, I want to become a Bitcoiner and put his life savings into Bitcoin and then sent it to uh, a malware infected treasure that his seed phrase had been compromised on and he lost like his life savings. And like, that's a really sad story. You know, I don't want to see that happen to anybody, especially somebody new who really is excited about Bitcoin, uh, really just wants to be a part of it, is excited about the monetary properties of Bitcoin, is excited to escape the, the slavery treadmill of inflation. Um, you don't want to set those people up for failure with, with bad security practices just because it's easy, right? But there's a lot of, um, it's hard to point people to good security. That is also easy. That's a really difficult problem. So um, that's where my head's at constantly every day working on this project. Uh, if anybody has any questions and wants to jump up, feel free to raise your hand and I'll bring you up here. Um, I've been talking for about 25 minutes. I'll probably talk for maybe another 10 minutes unless there are any questions um, just about some of the stuff that I've been working on recently. In terms of the front end, I've got a, I talked about this earlier, but I'll talk about it again since there's some more people here. In terms of the front end, I've got a, I would say pretty close to functional um, single sig wallet at this point. The next steps that I'm going to be working on is the, uh, aspects of the front end that I need to finish to be able to spend, sign and spend and receive from the immediate wallet, which is the two of seven. Uh, right now, it would only work with the um, single sig like hot wallet uh, because I haven't built enough of the front end out beyond that part. But it is coming pretty close to being like a fully functional Bitcoin wallet, and it uses the Bitcoin UI kit assets. So if you guys haven't seen like some of the screenshots I've been sharing or the GitHub repository that I tweeted a little bit ago um, where everything's built in view, it's really easy. Like if you clone down the Git repo for the Arctica front end, you can run it in its own localhost server and it won't be hooked up to anything, but you can like open it up and click through the UI and stuff. And it, it's really slick. Like the Bitcoin design team did a really, really good job uh, with the UI kit assets. So I've been really excited to work with those because they just look really good. Like personally, it's one of my favorite Bitcoin wallets to just like screw around with. And it's not like a functional Bitcoin wallet yet, but it's just fun. Like it looks great. Um, it's really smooth cause it's built in view. So there's like a lot of, um, ways to do like, I forget what you call it. State management and, um, and any non-developer is going to like start tuning out if I start talking about like the intricacies of view. But uh, it basically allows you to have like a like a single page application or like a multi-page application with no loading time in between screens. So it makes for like a really smooth user experience. Like everything loads really fast, and the main bottleneck is just going to be um, how fast can you fetch the data that you need from Bitcoin Core, and everything else is going to load like really instantly, which is really great. Uh, so it's it's gonna in a, in like a user experience perspective probably be a lot similar to like Spectre, and uh, and how that works because I I think when you run Spectre it runs in like a localhost instance on your web browser which is 
we're, we're doing something really similar. So it's going to be running in a standalone GUI because we're going to be running the view in Tori, which just takes all of the the code that normally runs in your web browser and runs it in like a standalone application. Um, I don't... I'm trying to think of what I didn't talk about at the high level that I wanted to circle back to um, since it doesn't seem like anybody has any questions at the moment. So uh, I haven't talked too much publicly about all of the features of the blind password servers, I don't think. So I'll kind of give you guys like a high-level overview of what their functions are going to be. Um, they're kind of, it's going to be a federation. So kind of like the way Liquid works where uh, it's like a, a it's, it's not really like a chain. There's no consensus to be managed, but you obviously have to make sure that the um, pa password server operators are somewhat trustworthy, like in the, in the social credit sense, because you are relying on them to serve you um, decryption keys to be able to access your SDs. And there is redundancy in place, so that like in the, you have a relationship with, say, like four blind password servers, so that if one of them is offline or for whatever reason, you know, you have three other ones that you can still uh, get those requests served by. But there's also like a, a fail-safe in place where should, for whatever catastrophic reason, all of the blind password servers go down, you could still decrypt your keys. You would just need access to five of your um, SD cards. So that's uh, like kind of like a middle ground trade-off there. And then after four years, what happens is the blind password servers are financially incentivized to publish those decryption keys to the blockchain via a Bitcoin transaction that pays them. So they're incentivized to like stay online, serve you your password requests, and then eventually publish your privacy keys to the blockchain. Uh, and because they're just decryption keys, like that's not really publishing that information to the blockchain doesn't affect you in any way unless someone has access to one of your SD cards. So it's not really a problem um, because it's just a random key. Uh, nobody knows like what the context of it is, and then that key is going to actually pay the password server operator for publishing it to the blockchain. So it bakes in this financial incentive of um, decay decay into uh, just your access, your ability to decrypt each SD card, right? And then uh, there are some other features that the password server is going to have. Um, one of them is called we're calling it the duress protocol, where you're going to have two passwords, basically, that you set up when you first set up Arctica. One password is going to get sent to the BPS, and they'll send you back your decryption key, and you log in like normal. The other one is your duress password, which you only ever type in if someone's got a gun to your head and is telling you to um, send them all your Bitcoin. And it's going to send uh, a duress signal to the blind password server operator, who's going to be maintaining a encrypted file with um, a bunch of your personal information in it. So basically what this is, is if you guys are familiar with the cypherpunk um, idea of privacy, it's that it's your ability to selectively reveal yourself to the world. So when it's set up at Arc with Arctica, you're going to set up a folder uh, that contains like a bunch of your PII, not like social security number or anything like that, but like a photo of yourself and your name, because normally the blind password server doesn't know anything about you. They don't know who you are. Uh, and they won't know who you are unless you choose to send them the decryption key to that folder of PII that you gave them when you first set up. You can choose to never disclose that information, and that folder is totally useless because it can't be decrypted without that decryption key. So 
Um, what this does is you send out this distress signal along with like a chunk of money that goes straight to the BPS operator that responds to the call, um, which they can't get full access to until they come and find you and make sure that you and your family are okay. You know, whether that, whatever means they go about to do that, you know, is ultimately going to be up to them, but that's why this is going to be a federation and not just anybody will be able to run a BPS. It'll be like a, like a small group of trusted people essentially. Um, and, and basically they'll be getting paid to like respond to that duress call. Um, so it's a, it's a pretty interesting feature that like you wouldn't really be able to deliver unless you were building a product like this from the ground up with that in mind. Um, um, the other things that the um, BPS will do will be to allow a user to break their time lock early. Um, the problem with time locking Bitcoin is that nobody can predict the future, right? So you kind of need to bake ways to break time locks in. Like if, if you were just going to time lock something at the protocol level for like six years, um, that would be really risky and you would probably only want to put like a very, very small amount of your funds into that account, like funds that you were absolutely 100% positive without a doubt under no circumstance would you ever need access to in the next six years. But because of that, like because of that hard requirement that you need to make absolute certainty that, that you don't need those funds for six years, uh, it kind of limits the amount of capital that you can um, that can take advantage of that extra security assurance of having like a time locked uh, wallet. So by having like a like a fail safe in place where okay this is a no shit emergency I have ballpark say like five million dollars in this delayed account and I absolutely need access to it early. There is a way to do it. Uh, it's it's expensive and it's slow and it's painful, but there is a way to do it and it's basically going to be another one of the features provided by the. Uh, the BPS operators, because you'll basically send them some money, it will decrypt your PII folder, they'll get in contact with you using like a very, very strict set of protocols uh, that we'll have set out for them. And then they will sign uh, the transaction for you using what's called the time machine key, uh, which will allow you to like spend your Bitcoin early. If you don't have the time machine key, after four years, they publish it to the blockchain. And that's kind of where the decay comes from. So like that's how the time lock is handled. Um, and then the actual decay of the spending threshold of the five and seven is going to happen uh, through Taproot. But the the actual like time lock is not done at the protocol level. It's done via those time machine keys that are required to spend and are published to the blockchain after four years alongside the privacy keys. So the, the decay is actually happening... Um, like at our protocol level, not like at the Bitcoin protocol level. Um, and the neat thing about that is that you don't really have to use those features if you don't want to. Like if that sounds kind of concerning to you and sketchy, you know, you just don't put anything in the PII folder. And then if you want, you just like don't use the delayed wallet. You just use the two of seven. Um, or, you know, you use the, the delayed wallet, but you think you use it in the sense where you're treating it like it's a traditionally time-locked uh, wallet that, that you absolutely cannot break under any circumstances. And you're just a little bit more careful about the funds that you put into that. The um, extra security and privacy that the protocol was designed for, like with that in mind, um, with the redundancies in place that you could like access those funds in, an, in a no-shit emergency. Um, so, you know, everything in engineering has a trade-off. Um, I think that there's a lot of really interesting trade-offs 
in the design decisions that we're taking with Arctica here because uh, it's going to enable people to do like a lot of really cool things that they wouldn't have been able to do otherwise. Um, and the blind password servers are going to be like a really neat thing that are going to enable a lot of really cool features that you haven't seen um, any other products or services offer in Bitcoin while doing it in a way where it's like we're not trying to monetize the software like that's all going to be given away. And then it'll be kind of like this federated Red Hat model, kind of like the way Linux provides support to its end users. Like it gives the product away for free. Um, but then there's like a premium support services that it charges for. Um, that's kind of like the end game here. I, I think like I'm like 90% sure that's the direction that this is going to go. Uh, the, the, all the blind password server stuff's going to be open source too. But I don't think... Um, in terms of like participation in that, you could spin up your own, right? But in terms of like the federation that will be offering, it will probably be like its own closed federation. But anybody could spin up their own federation. That's kind of like the beauty of like a, um, that's like the interesting thing to me about Liquid, right? Is that like it's this federation of, um, they're, they're trusted counterparties, but they're, incentivized to not be bad actors like in in all the best ways possible so it's not what you would want to do by any means like at the base layer of money right like you would never like if, if bitcoin was a federated chain at the base layer it would never work right but but it can work um in certain instances of protocols that are built on top of the uh base layer like which is bitcoin which is trustless um which which does offer all of these security assurances building other layers of like federated settlement on top of that um i, I think are really interesting and i i think liquid is like really underappreciated in bitcoin like i don't think people non-technical people especially like really grasp the significance of what liquid enables bitcoin to do and in a way that that doesn't totally eliminate trust but really really minimizes trust um is something that like all of the shit coins wish that they could have done and didn't do uh and and frankly like if any of the shit coins had just done what liquid did technically they probably could have been like pretty successful instead of reinventing the wheel like they did um so yeah that that's and I, liquid is like the closest example um that i can think of really so it looks like there's one person who's requesting to come up i'll let you come up real quick i don't think you've been in here very long but what's up man okay well i'm about to end this because i haven't had any uh, questions really. Hey, I have a question. Where's the? Where's the? What do you think the bottom of Bitcoin is to buy? Do you, would you go long? Yeah, that's not really the purpose of this discussion right now. So why? So uh, yeah, I think that that's about it for this. Um, if you guys want to follow the project, that like definitely check out the GitHub. Like, I would very welcome open source contributions, like, to either the front end or uh, the back end is still kind of like a work in progress. We mostly only have the Rust wrapper in place right now. Um, here, okay, I'll, I'll try again. Go ahead. Blogging Bitcoin. Hello? We're planning on using Taproot or anything like that for some of the time locks. Yes, yeah, so I was kind of talking about this a little bit earlier. So the um, the decay, so the time lock itself won't be at the 
at the protocol level, like at the Bitcoin protocol level. Um, and, and the reason that though we're doing it that way is because we want to have a fail safe in place where if you, if you need to access the funds early, you can. So basically what it's going to be is our, our blind password server operators are going to have what we're calling time machine keys that you're going to need to spend within that first four year threshold. And then after that four year threshold is over, they're going to be, financially incentivized to publish those keys to the blockchain so that you no longer need to obtain them from the uh, BPS to spend. So that's kind of how our time lock works. But the decay, the spending threshold decay is actually going to be done with uh, Taproot because the 5 of 7 is going to eventually decay down to a 2 of 7 and I believe eventually to a 1 of 7. So that'll be done with Taproot. All right, awesome. Thanks. Yeah. Yeah, uh, and like I said, anybody that's interested in like contributing or checking out the project, check out the GitHubs. Uh, most of the work's being done on the front end right now, and we're just getting started on the back end. So um, definitely welcome anybody that's interested to contribute technically or just as like a user that wants to like test anything we've got. Like, feel free, try to break it, go for it. Uh, thanks for listening, guys, and I will do another one of these sometime soon. <laughs>